0: The Jodcast, our easiest show to make of all time. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogashanu, Samuel Lesky, Fiona Porter, Lizzie Lee, Tian Bzeidenhout, and Luke Hart. The Jodcast, the one for month 4, 2020. Hello, and thank you for joining us for The Jodcast. I'm Fiona Porter, and joining me in the room where we make our voices into computer sounds are Lizzie Lee and Tian Besidenhout. Hello. Hi. Here at the Jodcast, we've been worried that the way we talk on this show can sometimes be hard to understand. To make this better, for this show, we will only be using the 10 hundred most used words. In the show this time, Fiona Porter questions Stuart Ayers about a study he's doing now about a star that blew up a long time ago. And Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogashanu and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the month four night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Luke Hart with this month's news.
1: First, some news about what has been happening at our space building. Since we started making this month's show, the Place of Higher Learning in Manchester decided to shut down all buildings to help students and people who work there safe so we can no longer get into our space building. Because of this, the jogcast will sound a little different. We can't use the room where we make our voices into sounds, and we might not have all the usual things we talk about in it. Even though we might not sound as good as usual, we'll do our best to keep the show going out. Ours isn't the only space place that is no longer open. Among others, the Jodrell Bank star watching place, Alma, and ESO have all closed or working on shutting down. This is again so that the people who work there can stay safe. Now, people who study space are working from home when possible, like all of us here. This means that space news might not be as quite as exciting as usual for the next few weeks or months, but don't worry, we've still found some for you today. While we here at the Jobcast usually use space machines to look out into space rather than back down at Earth, Our space-watching machines are also very important to understand our own world. These space machines, which go around in circles a hundred times higher than Earth's highest mountains, give us a special view of the Earth and see interesting things since all people are having to stay inside. Our space machines are seeing up to half less of some kinds of bad tiny matter in the air over large parts of the world. Images from near-Earth space machines also show much less travel and visitor interest at places where people board moving machines. Since these kinds of bad, tiny air matter are mostly made by our moving machines and buildings where human goods are made, it is a sign that people's doings are lowering across the world. It is interesting to know how much these changes can be seen from space, although the situation causing it is clearly very bad. We hope all of you listening are taking care of yourselves and each other. While many of us at the Jobcast can continue working from our homes, our thoughts are with everyone who is alone or in trouble at this time. Until next time, back to the main talking people.
0: Thanks for that, Luke.
2: Now Fiona Porter questions Stuart Ayres about a study he's doing now about a star that blew up a long time ago.
0: Hello, I'm Fiona Porter, and joining us in the Jodcast studio today is Stuart Ayres from the University of South Wales.
3: Hello Fiona, great to meet you.
0: Good to have you here. Now, you might be at the University of South Wales now, but I hear that you are in fact a triple Manchester graduate.
3: That's right, did my first degree here and you know, kept going until I got my PhD. <laughs> couldn't get enough.
0: Well, you managed to escape in the end.
3: Big rubber band snapped me back today. <laughs>
0: So can I ask a little bit about how your career has been going throughout that?
3: Yeah, so um, having done my PhD at Royal Bank, I was five years as a postdoctoral researcher at Keele University at John Moores, notionally working on infrared space observatory and Hubble Space Telescope data, but throughout that doing radio astronomy as well, which is where I started. Some of the stuff I'll talk about today relates to is is radio astronomy. Mm. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, eight years uh, as a lecturer working my way up to being a a deputy an associate head of school and i've just realized it's about 10 years that i've been in, in university management but still doing some teaching and still managed to do some research Funny enough, from what i've done in those previous roles hmm.
0: so you've managed to cover quite a broad spectrum of uh, of roles in that time really.
3: yes and it's been interesting and uh, yeah of well, the challenge is not to move too far away from the academic core as you try to be, a, be a more of a leadership role so it's been interesting hmm.
0: so you gave a talk just shortly before this interview in fact uh, which was about a rather interesting object that was first spotted in 1670, and he gave some really interesting historical context for that. Yes, yeah, so it's an interesting
3: object. It's now known as CK Vul, so CK Vulpeculae in the constellation of Vulpecula. And in the eighties, that 1980s, that was related to this nova in Vulpeculae that went off after the seen in 1670. So seen by some very well-known astronomers of the time, So Cassini made some observations. There's a guy called uh, Johannes Hevelius was involved in first identifying it as a new star in the sky. So literally, you know, they were observing the sky and they saw this object of third magnitude, which is, you know, a relatively bright star that they'd never seen before. In fact, it was reported as the Nova Subcapiti Cygni, which is the new object just below the head of Cygnus constellation. So they observed that back in the 1670s. In the 1980s, people were interested in classical novae, which are an interacting binary star, and whether they were the same group of stars as a very similar sort of object called dwarf novae, and whether they hibernated. So no classical nova had ever been seen to become a dwarf nova, and no dwarf nova had ever seen to become a classical nova, even though their gross features, the sorts of stars they were and the size of the binary system were very similar. So those people were looking to see if there are historical examples of classical novae to see if whether or not it would become a dwarf nova. So C.K. Vul was interesting because at that point it was, a, it was 310 years since the outburst, so they could prove it was a classical nova and then discover whether or not it was now a dwarf nova, and that would constrain that theory. So that's what they were interested in. So they did some very uh, painstaking work of figuring out where on the sky exactly Hevelius had observed it and Cassini observed it, and obviously making their measurements of where they thought C.K. Vul was now, and with some various arguments because the accuracy of the position measurement they were able to derive from 1670 was not great. <laughs> um, they were able to make reasonable argument that the same object. And since then, we've you know, developed our understandings and demonstrated, yes, we're definitely the same object. Something happened in 1670 to cause this star to brighten to third magnitude, and that's the same thing that we're observing now with modern instruments.
0: It was really quite interesting. You gave a comparison between the sort of reports that are made when an object like this is discovered, well, it was in the time in the eighty in the 90s. 90s versus how it was reported in the 1670s, and it was actually surprisingly similar. Yeah,
3: and you're doing the same job. So so the example I showed in the 90s, which you'd still... The technology about how we do that has improved and speeded up and often automated now, but you're saying the same thing. You need to know how bright it is, where it is in the sky, um, get some confirmation from other people... And there's a formal way of doing that with what were called IOU circulars, which were literally physical telegrams that arrived in the observatory because that was the fastest way of doing it. And one thing I didn't mention was the example I'd shown was observed on the 19th of February and the confirmation came around on the 20th of February, so 24 hours to confirm the discovery. Now we'll do it in 24 minutes or 24 seconds. (laughs) In the 1600s, it was, you know, the discoverer spotted it on the 20th of July. Slightly later in the month, he went off to some assembly of scientists in Paris and told them about it and then in later on in the month they all confirmed the observations making their own observations so in that case it took days if not weeks to confirm what they'd seen and get other people to observe it or confirm and say they've all observed the same thing and it was ultimately published in, a, in an annual publication so again we might publish within hours or days but those very fast rapid moving uh, new objects they were working as quickly as they could be publishing it within 12 months so <laughs> the whole acceleration of how we do things has changed as well of course but the overall process is the same you know their language seems seems odd to us because it's old fashioned, I'm assuming English translated from the French at the time. But it does all the same things. It says who else has seen it. It says where it is. It says how bright it is. So that's where, you know, the nova subcopete signet came from the original publication saying this is a, a new object just below the head of the swan. And uh, I think it's a via lactae, which is in the Milky Way.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, at the time, uh, the language of science was very much Latin. Absolutely.
3: So that whole paper, it, the other interesting thing about that paper is, you know, it's a paper about all those stars. as a catalogue of stars, but it also happens to have an observation of Saturn's rings as well on the same paper, which was done by the same person. So he just wrote down all the things he'd done since the last time something had been published, and that happened to be an observation, right?
0: I mean, I suppose if you're only being published once a year, then you can sort of you yeah. sort of go, oh, and I did this, and I did yeah. that. That's
3: right. These are the interesting things I've done this year. Because the great thing about now is that's all you can find that paper. It's it, it's been scanned in by somebody. It's all digitised. You can find that in its original form. So it's fascinating to find that when I was I was just exploring that about the origin of the So my collaborator always used this phrase, nervous subcapiti Signet, and I thought, where has that come from? And when I tracked it down. It was there in his table of results.
0: <laughs> I think. Uh... For any of our listeners who speak Latin, if there are any of you out there who want to have a look at this, I'll see about attaching a link to the interview notes so you can have a little look at the original Latin paper yourself. So moving from history back on to the more modern research of Nova Subcafite Signa.
3: Yes, so um, one of the things I talked about was why originally we were interested in it. So my my research started in Classical Novi um, when I was a student here, and the person I was working with after that was also interested in that. So we were interested in this object because it might be a link between Classical Novi and Dwarf Novi. Now it turns out when you look at how this object behaved in the 1670s and some of its other contemporary features that we observe, then it almost certainly isn't a Classical Novi. So not least, it was seen to brighten in in 1670. It was then seen to brighten again in 1671, and in that case, occasion because they were aware there might be an interesting object there, they were being much more, more attentive to it, and they saw it brighten as well as fade. Now, classical novi brightened in hours, you know, and until the advent of modern continuous robotic observations of these objects, we never had detected the rise phase. In fact, in many cases, we not even couldn't even detect it before uh, it brightened. So, the fact that there was a slow rise phase, which was as slow as the subsequent decline. And the fact that it did that in 1670, 1671, and then appeared more faintly in 1672, both of those argue against it being a classical nova. So that, even, you know, that was known in 1985. But to be fair, in 1985, we didn't understand classical novae quite as well. So you know, there the, the was also an argument that we, we couldn't be sure until we'd done the work. In the 2000s, uh, one of the things I showed was uh, observations published in 2015, which were a fantastic piece of work by Kaminsky, with spectra of molecular lines over a very wide range of frequencies. Um, so twenty seven different molecules, which is an, anybody who knows anything about this is an enormous number of molecules detected so, you know, in one set of spectrum, with different isotopes in those molecules, so there's actually thirty seven different isotopic species altogether in there. Isotopes that you don't get from a classical Novae. So again, that was a more modern explanation. There definitely wasn't a classical nova, Though by that point we pretty much convinced ourselves.
0: <laughs> Still doesn't hurt to have a little bit of backup, does it? No, and
3: it was how you explored that, having, you know, it told you pointed to other possibilities as well. Mm. Um, and one of the things I talked about in the, in the talk was the fact that we've gone through a whole list of possible objects that would could brighten in this way in the 60, as it did in the 1670s and gradually excluded them. So there's a whole load of other sorts of novae supernovae that we've, we've gradually excluded. There's something called a very late thermal pulse object, which again I've done a lot of work on. So a very late thermal pulse object is something that happens... We think about 20% of made-sequence stars, so about 20% of stars like the Sun do this. The Sun could do it at a later point in its its evolution. These stars, when they are starting to become a white dwarf, have a residual layer of helium and hydrogen that reignites and sends them back to the giant part of their evolution. We call them born-again giants. Um, So it could have been one of those, but again, there's a whole load of features that rule that out. So at the moment, we're classifying it into this rather small group known as red novies. Small in the sense there's not many of them, We know, a handful, maybe ten. Um but it's also quite a large group in the sense that there's quite a range of different characteristics, so it may actually be that there's more than one type of star in there. Right. But well, they become bright and then they go very red. As opposed oh. to classical novi, which become bright and go very blue. Okay, so that's why they're called red novae. It's not a very imaginative name, but it does describe <laughs> well,
0: them. That's astronomy for you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah.
3: So the best explanation we've got of those over the range is that they're a merger between two stars or perhaps a star ingesting a planet around it. And we've kind of fitted this object into that range of possibilities there. So what we were claiming is this is a white dwarf and a brown dwarf colliding. So a white dwarf is, 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 as a mass of around about the sun, maybe a bit less, but compressed into the volume of the earth. A brown dwarf actually would be much bigger, even though it's less massive, because it's a kind of failed star or a very large bit. You know, what you would get if Jupiter was more, much more massive, but not big enough to be a star. So actually, although it's much, it's less massive, it's actually a bit bigger than the white dwarf and fluffy. Mm-hmm. So those two things, interacting and colliding in 1670, might have given what we see, what we saw then, and what we now see. Yeah, so we've been working on this for a few years, including one of our papers, literally going through all the possibilities and knocking them off. <laughs> so i trying to figure it out. And then... The same piece of work that showed all those molecules also observed the dust, so the tiny particles of solid material around the star, and demonstrated that that dust was, existed at a temperature of 15 kelvins. So that's very cold, obviously, by any normal terrestrial standards, but it's not an unusual temperature for solid dust particles to be in space. And the observations of that had been with a the telescope that didn't have sufficient resolution to tell you where it was and how it was, just that it was associated with the star, so what we did was use the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array which is an international European Southern Observatory uh, system that the people here in Manchester help to operate and we used that to image that cold dust around the object and found some quite complicated structures there uh, that are very similar in my mind to to the things we see in planetary nebulae and pre-planetary nebulae and um, so planetary nebulae is what you get when a sun star's below about eight solar masses. So for example the sun get to the end of their life and they eject the envelope of their the gaseous envelope and it forms very elaborate structures that we're still trying to understand how those formed. But what we see with the alma around this object is very similar elaborate structures uh, and those those structures in planetary nebulae are usually attributed to some form of binary system so more than one star in the center, two or more stars in the center that shape planetary nebulae as they, as they are formed. So that indicates that yeah. There was probably a binary system there when we started in 1670, and that therefore allows the possibility of a merger. Now, to get mergers, you need to disrupt the system. You need to disrupt the system. And a binary system, a genuinely binary system, two similar masses going around each other is actually very stable. But if you had another object, so say another star or a large planet that then allows you interactions which would cause things to become unstable. So it seems seems likely that if it is a stellar merger and a disruption of the system, there must be other objects in there. And we have a couple of very high proper motion objects in the field of view. So in other words, two compact bright things that are moving across the sky quite quickly. And measurements have shown that if you track, track those two back, they come to the same point in the middle of the system, where we think the star is, in 1670. So that seems likely that you're seeing a disrupted multiple system. But we haven't got Observations to confirm that for example we'd like to know what those two ejected objects are you know and at the moment they're just providing some bright light in that in in the hydrogen but we don't know anything else about them. and they're moving quite quickly
0: are there any theories about what they might be could they be for example is there anything to rule out whether they might be a third star because i certainly know that trinary systems are possible or Absolutely. a large planet. in
3: fact lots of multiple systems are out there they're not a star in the sense of being say a star like the sun because this observation you made would have detected that and demonstrated that they could be compact brown dwarf systems perhaps with, with something around them to, to shroud them but a brown dwarf system or a planet of some sort but something more compact than just a ball of gas It's possible that a, you know, a compact ball of gas would maintain its identity over 350 years. But it seems it, it seems odd that that would be the only thing. You, know, you get a couple of those going in that direction. So my current thinking is we if we have a good look at those and try and figure out if they could be ejected planets or ejected brown dwarfs, that would then give us a handle on the system and potentially allow us to measure. If you measure the masses of those, then it also gives you some way of getting into the dynamics of what happened in the 1670s. Right. The other challenge for this object is because it is quite unusual you have to think about, well, what else does it tell us about astronomy? So that understanding, if there's have actually got an example, we can understand what happens when a multiple system disrupts. There's lots of theories about that, which are very well-founded and well-constrained theories in terms of, you know, it's well-understood physics, it's Newton's laws, essentially, and a bit of, I guess, a bit of gas dynamics actually finding examples of where it's happened there aren't many of them so this could be an example of that and of course with a long time scale in terms of history observation so that, that, that's interesting as well.
0: Mm. I suppose it's very rare to be able to have an object which you can follow up on over quite that length of time.
3: Oh absolutely no I mean yes there's a handful of them a lot of my work has been on following objects for several years from the time it's going on so, 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 so certain parts of the astronomy, is trying to, to do that but certainly not centuries and I guess I guess famous, the famous one would be the, the Crab Pulsar, the Crab Nebula, and then the supernova in
0: that was originally
3: 1054. I
0: think you know, which... yeah, the Chinese astronomers right. I believe spotted that one.
3: Right, so it's reported by the Chinese astronomers when they were you know, they were recording those things. So, but there's relatively few objects. Absolutely, where you can go, okay, we saw something in ancient, older times, or ancient times, and we can. You start to find something out about
0: now, and naturally, a lot of these things start off more or less invisible to us. So it is there's a degree of luck in spotting one of these things when they happen.
3: And that's changed a lot. So um, historically, these objects were detected by not in the 1600s. I'm talking about the you know the 1900s, and then were detected by amateur astronomers. And certainly in, in the 1980s, 1990s, it was amateur astronomers who were interested. They would have a binoculars and they'd find these things and report it. So the, the example I showed you was probably a well-equipped amateur astronomer with, with telescopes doing these observations and then we'd respond to that. Increasingly, there's still a role for amateur astronomers in that, but increasingly, of course, we've now got automated surveys that go down to very faint brightnesses, 18th or 20th or 24th magnitude on a regular basis and they often will identify these things beforehand. So we now have, for example, some observations of uh, the rise of classical novae from their faint state to their bright state,
0: which, Mm. you know, Historically, it would have needed an enormous amount of luck to pull off. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Um, because you wouldn't know, it didn't know there was anything there until it reached its bright state. So, so we're now, because of the test, systematically observing whole bits of the sky on a regular cadence. So I think I, there's a paper we published a few years ago, which was, I think, a 20, every 20 minutes was being observed. So we actually saw the rise to, to peak. Be able to say something about that but that's only become possible in the last few years and at the moment only on a very small number of cases because it's not usually what they look it's not what they're designed to observe So it's just look if they happen to be pointing the right direction at the right time that will change because now we're going down to 24th magnitude you know several times a week or or whatever it will be with some of the the large surveys so the last thing I I talked about was how we what we might do next so obviously we've got these, these observations of these this object and and It's pointing to a stellar merger in the 1670s. The structures we're seeing now, like Planche Nebulae, all kind of support that, but that bit's a little bit speculative now. Um, So there's a few ideas I've got about what we do next. One is to just explore these two ejected objects and just try and understand those a bit more, see if they aren't brown dwarfs or whatever they might be, because that gives an idea of what the system was before and therefore what must have happened. We also want to go back and examine the data in a bit more detail because we've got some information about the velocity. It took me a bit of time to find somebody who could work with me on that because it's not my area of expertise. So we want to go back and have a look at the velocity structures of the gas and how that's evolving. That, again, might tell us something about what's driving it and therefore what happened. Yeah, so those are the two sort of areas of interest for me. There's a couple more esoteric parts, but those are the two things I think we'd find out. Oh, The last thing we might be able to do is measure if there is a disky structure in the middle, You, Mm -hmm. in principle, will be able to measure how that's rotating and from that work out the mass of what's in the middle. Mm -hmm. And if it's what we think it is, it'll be a certain mass. If it turns out to be a completely different mass, yet Mm -hmm. again, we'll have to go back to the drawing board.
0: (laughs) Uh, Keep on crossing out all those ideas. eh? But still, another thing which is good just to have a potential method of confirmation on.
3: Yes, just got to persuade the telescope panel to give us the time to observe it.
0: (laughs) Well, best of luck. And if that uh, elastic band does ever snap you back to Manchester again and you've gotten a bit more in the way of results on it. We'd love to hear from you again.
3: Thank you. to Fiona. thank you very
0: much. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Bye for now.
4: Thanks for that Fiona. This month, instead of the show people talking about stories they've found, we've asked the people who work in our space building to tell us about their work. Of course, they will only be using the 100 most used words.
0: First, Crispin Agar.
1: I work on stars that have reached the last parts of their lives. At this point, they've gone through the stage where they blow up, and what is left is a very small, heavy piece that is the size of a city, but still is heavier than our sun. These stars are the heaviest, smallest things in space, one step behind a black hole. They turn round very fast, and because they're also trying to pull metal towards them, this makes them become a machine, which gives out lots of light from the top and bottom, which we can only see with big radios. As the stars turn round quickly, the light flashes on and off, I look at the shape the light makes as the star goes round, and which way it points on the sky, and this tells me how the star makes the
4: light.
2: Now, Tien Poseidon how?
4: Some lights that are up in the sky are always there, never changing. Others can only be seen now and then, or even just once, and never again. To find these lights, you need a couple of things at once. First, a big old thing to catch the light even better, many of them. Second, a real strong computer to look at the light. And third, some well-thought-out orders to tell the computer what to do so as to find the flashing lights. My team and I are working with a set of light-catching things in my homeland. We are writing the orders to let a computer there find those flashing lights in the sky in real time. Once we have found enough of them, we can try to figure out what in the world is making them. But, I'm sad to say, we have not seen any flashes yet. Really, what I've learned so far is that sometimes the sky and lady chance work together to kill your dreams. Still, I have hoped that our day will come soon, and on that day I will be very happy. Here's Jake Stabberg-Morgan. My
5: work is all about worlds which go around stars other than our sun we found quite a few of them so far, and they come in all the types you can imagine. We haven't found any other worlds with life on them yet, but we would very much like to. To find these worlds, we watch their star as the world goes across it, which makes the star a little bit less bright. From this, we can tell how big the world is, how quickly it goes around its star, and even what it might be made of. The ones I look at are big and very close to their stars, going around in a few days or even less. Because they're so close in, they're very hot, and lots of them don't turn around in the normal way. Instead, one side always faces the star and is very hot, while the other side is always dark. The people that look at these worlds have made a problem. Because we're finding so many new worlds from space, we don't have enough time, money, people, or other stuff and things to look at them all. It will be too much work to get people to go through all of the worlds in the group and then pick out the good ones, so I have made a computer do it for us. We have to pick some important numbers for each world. We like big worlds around bright stars, because they're easier for us to see. We also like hot worlds, because that makes them bigger and easier to see. And we also like worlds that go around their stars quickly because that means we have more times to look at them. Using these important numbers, we make a big group of all the worlds we know and give each one a number that says how good they are to look at. We can then pick the best ones and give them to people to go and look at them to try and work out what they're made of. That way, we won't have to go through the group by hand and it will still work as the group gets bigger. I am writing about all of this at the moment in what's called a sad book. We each have to write a sad book at the end of our time here, with lots of words and pictures. Once the book is done, some big space people will come and ask me lots of questions about all the things I did. If they like what I've done, I will be allowed to call myself a doctor and wear important clothes.
0: Here's
2: Lizzie Lee. Stars are found in groups in space called star groups, and these star groups are often found in larger groups called star group groups. These star group groups are very big and also have a lot of dust in them, and this dust is very, very, very hot. As hot as the inside of the sun. And gives off light we can only see with special seeing things. We can also see this dust because it changes other light that passes through it. I'm going to give some more words about this light. In the very beginning, after the big loud noise, light could not be seen because light was changed and eaten quickly by everything else. This was because there were lots of things and not very much space. Then, as things moved away from one another, the light could move around everywhere. Some of this light can still be seen today, although it is very old. This is called the space small light behind all things, and can actually be seen in the white noise in televisions and radios. Since this light is everywhere, it has passed through many star group groups, and has been changed in special ways that we can see. This special change is called the Sanyev-Zeldovich change. I study how changes in these star group groups would change what we would see, so we can learn more about the star group groups. And here's Fiona
0: Porter. Stars are usually found in large groups in space called star groups. I study radio star groups called Faranoff-Riley star groups, which are broken into two classes, class 1 and class 2. We don't understand the reason why they give off radio waves in different ways, in part because we don't have many of them to study. My work hopes to create some machine learning computer plans to be able to find Faranoff-Riley star groups without getting them confused with other kinds of star groups. Finding far enough Riley star groups can take lots of time at the moment, as all radio images need to be checked in person by people who study space. This needs the space studier to know what types of repeated shapes are expected in which kind of star group, and can take quite a lot of time for each image. If computer plans can be used to check new radio images in the future as soon as they're made, we could find large numbers of these new star groups very quickly. I'm working with a kind of machine learning called brain-like maps of machine thoughts, which are trained to find the star groups by being shown as many training images as possible. They pass the training images through picture changers, then guess what class of star group is in each image. They're then told if they were right, and start to learn what repeated shapes are expected to appear in each class, using the information they get from their picture changers. Once they've finished training, a map of machine thoughts like this can check hundreds of images every second. Thank you, everyone. If you would like to read about the work these people do, you can find these talks written down two ways at the computer place where our show lives. One written using the 10 hundred most used words, and another using whatever words they like. And now, using slightly longer words than we're doing, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky.
6: The night sky for April, 2020. As darkness falls, the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux in Germany, are setting towards the western horizon. And center stage in the south, lies the constellation of Leo the lion, with its bright star Regulus. Between the two is a fairly faint region of the sky, but if you use binoculars, you should spot a rather lovely open cluster called Prisipi or the Beehive Cluster. Moving over towards the southeast is a bright star Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes, and just up to its left a little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis. That's the northern crown. High overhead lies Ursa Major, with that asterism called the plough. The two right-hand stars, Merrick and Dupe, point up towards Polaris, the pole star, very close to the north celestial pole. If you look at the centre star of the three that make up the handle, and you'll probably need binoculars, you should see it's a double star. The brightest is called Mizar, and the fainter is called Alcor. So, a few things to see. It's not quite as exciting as we've had in the winter, or perhaps we're getting midsummer. But nevertheless, do have a look. The planets. As April begins, Jupiter rises some three and a half hours before the Sun, shining at magnitude minus 2.1. During the month, it brightens at magnitude minus 2.3, whilst its angular size increases from 37 to 40.6 arc seconds. A low southeastern horizon will be needed, and our views of the giant planet and its Galilean moons will be somewhat hindered by the depth of the atmosphere through which it will be observed. Now Saturn rises at the start of April, some 20 minutes after Jupiter, and by its end at about 0250 UT, whilst its magnitude increases slightly from plus 0.7 to plus 0.6. And the angular size increases from 16.1 to 16.9 arc seconds. Saturn reaches quadrature that's 90 degrees an angle from the sun on April 21st which enhances the three-dimensionality of its globe and rings. At 21 degrees to the line of sight the rings are slightly less tilted as they have been for some time. Sadly again its low elevation before sunrise will limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Now Mercury is lost in the sun's glare this month so we cannot observe it. Mars, one of the three planets we can see in the pre-dawn sky can be seen in the southeast. It rises at about 0448 a.m. and we will be best seen at about 6 a.m. having an elevation of 8 degrees it will then have a magnitude of plus 0.78 and a 6.4 arc-second salmon pink disc. It will lie just inside Capricornus. By month's end it will moved over to the east of Capricornus and its magnitude will have increased to plus 0.43 with an angular size of 7.6 arc-seconds. Given good seeing it might just now be possible to spot with a telescope some of the features on the surface, such as Certus Major. Well, Venus is still dominating the southwestern twilight sky. It reached greatest elongation east from the sun on the 24th of March, but it is still near its highest possible altitude. And April is still one of the very best months to observe it in its eight year cycle of apparitions. As April begins, it will have an elevation of 39 degrees at sunset, about the highest elevation it can ever achieve. During the month, its angular size increases from 25.5 to 38.2 arc seconds. But at the same time, its phase, that's the percentage of the illuminated disc, decreases from 47% to 26%. And so the brightness only increases slightly from minus 4.5 to minus 4.7 magnitudes. And that is about the brightest that Venus ever gets. Finally, some highlights of the month. Before dawn on the 1st of April, there's a very nice lineup of Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. Mars will be seen to lie just below Saturn with Jupiter over to their right. On April the 3rd, Venus will actually be seen within the Pleiades cluster, or perhaps I should say in front of the Pleiades cluster. It'll be just to the left of one of the brightest stars, Merope. That will make a wonderful photographic opportunity. Let's just hope it's clear. Before dawn on the 15th, the Moon joins three planets. The Moon, just after third quarter, lies below a line-up of Mars, Saturn and Jupiter. On the 25th of April, after sunset, a very thin crescent moon lies between the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. It may be possible to spot the old moon in the new moon's arms due to Earthshine. That's light falling on the moon's dark side, reflected from clouds on the Earth. Binoculars might well be needed, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. If you search for night sky jodril, you'll find the night sky page and the little charts and pictures of all of these highlights. There's also a picture of the moon, the full moon, and I've annotated the mare on its surface. It's quite nice to learn them. Some, of course, you can see with your unaided eye but others you'll perhaps need binoculars to spot. So not a fantastic month for observing, but I do hope you enjoy whatever you can.
2: Thanks for that, Ian. And now for the people who listen to us and live below the world's middle line, here's Haratina Mokashanu and Samuel Leske with The Night Sky Where You Are.
7: Kia ora from Lockdown New Zealand. Hi everyone from
8: deep inside our house.
7: I'm Haritina Mogoshano.
8: And I'm Samuel Lesky.
7: In these very strange times, as we find ourselves locked inside our homes, we might have some ideas as to what to do with the April night sky.
8: Hopefully you'll be able to actually get out of your house and take your telescope somewhere else to have a look at the night sky. There is definitely going to be a full moon, a new moon, and some other moon phases in April.
7: All planets are visible, some in the evening, some throughout the night, and some in the morning.
8: We will also be talking about the month of April. Where did it get its name from? What's in the starry sky? And what our favorite deep sky objects are this month. And there's a lot of them.
7: April is a month of action in astronomy and stargazing. Well, now at least we can do it online, if not in person. There is Global Astronomy Month, which is organised each year by uh, Astronomers Without Borders in April. And then there is the International Dark Sky Week, that also happens in April. And this year is from Sunday 19th of April until Sunday 26th of April.
8: We can still see the three brightest stars in the sky, Sirius, Canopus, and Alpha Centauri.
7: From our window.
8: Yeah, from yeah, <laughs> well, a few of the windows. Although the first and the last ones are double. And the Milky Way is brightest towards Southern Cross region. Now, really serious, a double, it's got a white dwarf, so it's not an easy double. But Alpha Centauri is very much an easy double.
7: So here's what you need to do for April if you can come out of your house. Look for Venus in the evening sky, where it is shining very bright. You can try and see it during daytime if your eyesight is good.
8: And you know exactly where to look. Look for Jupiter after midnight at the beginning of the month, and after 10.30pm towards the end of it. Thanks to Daylight Saving as well. Well, Daylight Saving down in the southern hemisphere. As well as Earth's revolution around the Sun that, among other things, makes stars rise four minutes earlier every single day. Try to spot Saturn and Mars about half an hour after Jupiter.
7: Morning Owls, if there's anybody out there. Can still enjoy Mercury. Enjoy it while you can and also there will be a beautiful arch of planets stretching across the sky in the morning sky, and you're very welcome to tell us if it's worth waking up that early to see them. Unfortunately and sadly, Mercury will disappear in the twilight of the rising sun at the end of the month.
8: I certainly remember last year when there was a whole bunch of planets all in a big line across the night sky. It was absolutely fantastic. Mind you, that was in the evening rather than the, the early morning, evening, yeah. so everybody could see it easily. Try to see the brightest stars in the sky. Now is the time, as it was last month, but we can still enjoy these in April. They are Sirius, the dog star, Canopus, the cat star, meow, and Alpha Centauri, our closest (laughs) neighbour, 41.3 trillion kilometres away.
7: So it's in the same zone.
8: Yeah, it's a long way away. Although technically Sirius and Alpha Centauri are double stars, so then are they the three brightest stars or the five brightest stars? Mm -hmm. If you're into galaxy spotting, and we have plenty for you this month, you must decide Which one you choose?
7: Milky Way is the obvious choice, and as we said before, it's brightest towards crooks. The center of the galaxy rises about 10pm. In it, Scorpius is now called here Manaya Kiterangi, the guardian of the sky, and if you're into jewelry, you'll see that it looks like a manaya made of greenstone ponamu. It is a beautiful name for Scorpius, and it is great that the asterism can look like so many things, including a scorpion
8: which here in New Zealand don't exist, of course. Other visible galaxies are obviously the clouds of Magellan, the large and the small. We spent a few good hours the other day talking with our friend astrophotographer Ian Cooper about these. Look for the Magellanic clouds in the southern part of the sky. Obviously, the part that we call circumpolar. From here, as the stars there never set, never rise, but move around the celestial pole in circles. Usually any star above declination minus 60 classifies as circumpolar from here. Now the juicy part. There are some amazing, amazing galaxies that we look at anytime we have the chance. And at this time of the year, there's a whole bunch of them around Leo. So for our Northern Hemisphere listeners, Leo in the Southern Hemisphere is upside down from what you're used to. So the most amazing of the group of galaxies is the Leo triplet, which is M66, M65, and of course NGC 3628.
7: And they look dashing.
8: They do. And really amazing to see three of them in the eyepiece. Now, if you've got a big enough telescope, you can always go a little bit up the sky to NGC 3593 and then a little bit further away to NGC 3596, which are two nice galaxies too. Now, also a little bit above LEO, there's another bunch of galaxies with the Messier object M95, M96, M105 in fact, around M105, there's a couple of galaxies, NGC 3389 and NGC 3384. They're all quite easy to see. If you've got a big telescope, you can also have a look for four other galaxies that are closer to Leo than the three I just mentioned. NGC 3338, NGC 3367, 3377 and 3412. They are all pretty easy to find as well.
7: And we look at them every time there is clear skies.
8: Oh, we totally do. Now... NGC 3367, if you can catch that one, it's 150 million light years away, which is staggering. Absolutely staggering. Closer to the horizon is all of those galaxies that are around Virgo. Now, they're probably still a bit low for us, but by April, if we stay up late enough, there will be a beautiful bunch of galaxies to have a look through. So that's one of the great groups of galaxies that we share with the northern sky. Also, one of the classics for us is the Sombrero Galaxy. Absolutely magic to look through in the telescope. then, of course, there's M83, which is the big spiral that we see down here in the Southern Hemisphere. There's Centaurus A, also known as the Hamburger Galaxy. And and there's another great galaxy that we quite like looking as well. It's NGC 4945, which is just above Omega Centauri. Well, between Omega Centauri and the Southern Cross. And it's an absolutely beautiful galaxy. Look, at it's really big, and it's kind of edge-on. The other deep sky objects in the night sky, depends what tools you have. If We'll have a look at some of the binocular objects and also talk about some of the telescope objects. Of course, binocular objects, Omega Centauri is a nice big globular cluster, really easy to see and you can totally spot that. Now, you've got a nice dark sky, you'll also be able to see M83 pretty easily in the binoculars. So that's definitely worth checking out. There's not many galaxies you can see in binoculars, but M83 is one of them. And in summer, you can see Sculptor. So, now we're sort of heading into the colder months, M83 dominates. Then, of course, you've got the larger clusters. There's the Southern Pleiades you can have a look at, which is pretty amazing in the binoculars. Omicron Valorum is high in the sky, as is NGC 2516, or their Southern Beehive. And, of course, if you're looking at the Southern Beehive, you probably also want to look at the other beehive in Cancer. M44. M44, which is also an absolutely wonderful binocular object as well. M42. Oh, of course M42, yep. Eta Carina Nebula is always great and the Wishing Well cluster stands out really well in binoculars as well. 47 Tucanae is the other really nice globular cluster to have a look at. And of course what you can do as well is just lie on the ground with your binoculars and just browse around the large Magellanic Cloud. You'll see Tarantula Nebula and you might see a whole bunch of fuzzy looking stars which will be a big collection of globular clusters and little other open clusters they have in that galaxy. So well worth having a look at, especially if you've got a decent uh, high-powered pair of binoculars. But still quite cool on small binoculars as well.
7: So from here from New Zealand, we wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars. And stay safe.
8: Stay inside. Keep your two-meter distance from people and don't get sick. I'm Sam Liski.
7: And I'm Haritinamo Mogoshanu.
4: Clear skies, everyone.
7: And let's hear each other healthy next month. Bye. Bye.
4: Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And now on to the words that people have sent us. We have some words on the Facebook page. Jonathan Shin says, Love the January podcast, especially the New Zealand Star Safari. Nearly as good as being there listening to Haritina and Samuel's excitement and colorful word pictures. Thank you, Jonathan. That is very good words to hear. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so on the computer place where our show lives at www.jodcast.net.
0: Twitter at twitter.com
2: slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
4: YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
2: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us letters. You can find where our space building is on the computer place where our show lives.
0: Thanks to Stuart Ayres for answering our questions and telling us things. The people who make our words sound good were Joseph Vinicky, Lizzie Lee, George Bendo, Adam Abison, and... The person who put this show where people can hear it was Fiona Porter. Until next time... Jod on!